As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at devoiding myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up. Yeah. Cause this is my road. You're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 SM, your home for community radio. Salutations, New Haven. Salutations, Connecticut. Salutations, the world. Uh, I've got a great guest for us today. So I've got a uh, young and talented black filmmaker on the rise, Christopher Brown with us in the house. And we'll get to meet him. And there'll be an interesting twist. It seems that usually I'm doing the interviewing, but the filmmakers say, well, we want to do a little interview of you. So I don't know what that's going to be like, people. I'm a little nervous. I'm holding back. I don't know. But I'll do the best I can, Mr. Brown. So, Christopher, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and also your passions? So, Harry, I'm not hearing that on my end. Sorry. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Turner. <clears throat> and my name is Christopher Brown, as you mentioned. And um, I graduated from Trinity College. And I went on to study um, finance at Tuck School of Business, the bridge pro- program up in Dartmouth. Dartmouth. Um, and uh, I found myself at NYU, where I was studying filmmaking um, under Spike Lee and Richard Wesley. Uh, my focus was screenwriting and dramatic writing. So I studied a lot with Richard Wesley. I studied with, um, I mean, so many powerful people. I mean, I, I, I should have written down a, a list of people I need to thank, um, but namely Walter, Walter, Walter Bernstein was my mentor at the time. And, uh, you know, I just kind of got into the film industry from NYU. Just before you share that passion, they do have some testimonials on YouTube. So I've heard Spike mm-hmm. Lee talk about you. Others talk about you. So, yeah, my- uh, and I'm going to tell you, Spike Lee doesn't talk about me over there <laughs> at all. So if, I, and I haven't seen him anywhere on air talk about any other film directors or producers. So uh, that's an incredible piece. So, so your passion, is your passion uh, film? Is your passion writing? Tell us about it. Well, yes, my passion is writing and filmmaking. You know, I'm a, I'm a writer director. So my passion is to tell stories that, you know, I feel passionate about things that uh, move me and uh, causes that are important to me. I try to grapple with those type of issues, um, social justice issues. Um, also, you know, my last piece, Thoughts Are Things, was about the importance of libraries and the importance of small acts of kindness. I mean, I, I like to tell stories that... Um, I think will um, lead people in a in a good direction, um, because oftentimes, you know, when I was growing up consuming media, it was it was leading me in an opposite direction. So I wanted to take it back to the reading rainbows, take it back to you know the roots and you know some of the more powerful, you know, constructive storytelling um, that kind of left a lasting legacy, not only on the individual who saw it, but the family he was a part of or she was a part of. You know, one of I wanted to 
tell timeless pieces like that, like a do the right thing, if you will. Do the right thing. Perfect, perfect. And and you came to my attention from the community engagement office uh, with Camilla Hastings, who mm-hmm. knows I have a passion for dispelling a myth that Black fathers are absent. Oh, wow. Um, I'm saying, you know, I don't see this absence, and I, I don't, and it's got nothing to do with race, has to do with am I, uh, how poor I am, what my conditions are, but I see a lot of, I, I know too many Black fathers that are actively engaged, powerful, committed, and all 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 that stuff over there. So that's why she connected you to me. She said, oh, but, Dr. is always talking about, don't be giving me this deficit picture of, of, of our communities or struggle. It's sort of like the old public enemy song, don't believe the hype. I'm like, don't yeah. believe the hype. Black fathers are not absent. Uh, a, a whole thing, and, and across the way. But let me ask you, uh, how how did you decide you wanted to be a filmmaker? If I hear you were at Trinity, then you did some finance, then you were at Dartmouth, and then you were in NYU making making films. How? Well, it's interesting. Well, film was always my passion. So it's funny because I I I, I found my passion when I became a father. Interesting enough, um, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Carter. Um, was born uh, on the day that a good friend of mine was being buried. So I, I attended, you know, I became a dad on the same day that I was a pallbearer in a funeral. Wow. Um, same week that I was also attended another funeral for a good friend of mine who was a scholar. Um, and um, unfortunately, during the time in Hartford, the North, and especially, I mean, the entire city was just bloodshed. I mean, it was just people were, you know, turning the pistols to, you know, resolve conflicts. And it was just happening far too frequent and often among my peers. I lost about, I don't know, 17 or 18 friends the year that Carter was born. Um, and it drove me to my knees, really. You know, I had to pray for my purpose. Uh, and I found it when when uh, uh, a gentleman walked by my house with a stack of DVDs and a plastic bag that I offered to purchase from him. And when I got upstairs, uh, I found that it was a stack of DVDs from the Hartford Public Library. Um, And uh, before I got through that stack of DVDs, I had already found my purpose, um, which was to tell stories and be a storyteller. And to go full circle, 20 some odd years later, you know, I'm producing this film for the Hartford Public Library. And both of my daughters perform in the film. So my, my daughter that I was learning to change her diapers uh, happens to be the college student in Thoughts Are Things that's asking, looking for the science books. So that's just really interesting, I feel, uh, for me anyway. And people uh, will make sure that we throw in the link for that for that, that video over there for you. But but the film that, that really I just fell in love with is, is this Thoughts Are Things. And, and it's really this beautiful story. And I didn't realize both your daughters were in it. When we talked yeah. the other day, you mentioned one. Uh, you even mentioned you made a cameo in it. I mean, it is an incredible film about the love of libraries, about the power of librarians. And and it also, uh, my I showed it to my teachers last night, if you don't mind, Chris. I had a class that's fine, that's fine. teachers, and and they were in trawl. It was perfect because they're the teachers who are going to deliver some free tutoring services. And I said, mm. you never know, because in the film, there's a young boy that the librarian helps out when he's a little bit in trouble. He's young, not too much, but just a little. And then that young boy winds up saving his life in the end. So it's a powerful story. I love Thank the you. story. Where did it come from? 
Well, you know, I've seen um, I've seen a lot of films, and um, I I was that little boy at one point in time. You know, I was the one that needed guidance. I was the one that was kind of like uh, on the wrong side of the fence, if you will. And um, there were gentlemen in my community, um, a librarian named Anwar from the Harvard Public Library. Then I had a friend named Michael Patterson um, that worked downtown. And then it was I had a mentor, Ralph. Knighton, who's also from the city of Hartford, and they were feeding me books. You know, they were giving me books. In fact, it was my friend Mike who gave me that book, um, As a Man Thinketh, which I carry to me with, with me to this day. And it was books like that, literature like that, that kind of exposed me to the power of my mind and how how limitless life became when I became a reader. Like you know, it was just like, you know, I'd found myself. I found, I'd found, um, it's something you said the other day to me that books were either mirrors, windows, or sliding doors. And I found that, I found that to be true when I became a reader. It just opened up a whole new world of possibility to me uh, in terms of opportunity. And that's how I ended up at Trinity uh, and so on and so forth. So I hope that answered your question. No, that answers a question, and that, that idea that when we look at books as mirrors, we see ourselves in them. When we look at windows, we, we look into other people's lives. We get to know them, and those sliding doors are those ones where uh, uh, you you step into Ernest Gaines has, has, has this great book about a teacher and, and, and a prison. I don't want to get too much because I'll distract us, but it's one of those books you step inside. Mm. Come, that person. You see it. And, and and those are transformational books. That's what I say. Absolutely. But the library and the, the, these these books at the library, and we probably share some things in common. Um, so I'm the last white boy in the neighborhood in my community after the '68 riots and stuff. Everybody who could afford that was light skinned like me, they ran out of the community. I stayed, and I had the best of friends and the best of and welcoming places. But also, I was a homeless kid. So we'll get to that. Maybe we'll talk about the little library. But the library was a place I could be warm. Mm. And have. I could see books about my myself and the things I was going through. I could see others. So I could, and that transformational, I could see where I wanted to be. So yeah, the library was a was a perfect place. And I I have to say that <clears throat> there's uh, when you said how many people passed away living in the North End after I finished my PhD. I was coming back to New Jersey. So I'm from New Jersey and, and the fellows were like, Hey, yeah, let's get back. Let's get together. And I said, Whoa, all right, let's do that. And there were 25 of us who were champion football players on the team, but most of us were dead or suffering the long-term incarceration because it's just a way of poverty, but books and libraries saved me. So I'm sure we're going to do that. Tell me about, uh, what are some of your other projects? Oh, wait, wait, wait. You had other films, too. Come on. You yeah, got, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, you're not a one-shot wonder. No, no, not no. Not like, no. oh, what, you know, like, you know, some of those one-hit songs we have of the 70s or the 60s and stuff. No. You're like oh. the Supremes. You got a big, you got a, a, a an itinerary of hits. Tell us, just Thank name you. a couple more for us. Well, my first short film was Nani. That was the first, uh, that was my first, you know, credit as a writer-director. Um, and then I've made, a, uh, you know, some other films that have made some noise and, and some splashes. I wrote a commercial um, that, you know, I'm not sure how often they air it, but I shot that in Grand Rapids, Michigan for a friend of mine who owned a chain of 
uh, drug rehabilitation programs. And he's someone that I met at Sundance. I'd worked on, I crewed on a number of films also, either through Spike Lee, when I was working with Spike Lee on a film called um, uh, the, the Sweet Blood of Jesus. I met um, a gentleman by the name of Nate Parker. Him and Spike had just finished, um, they wrapped the film and I was I was also a part of that film, but I was an office PA on this film. I can't, the title of it. Um, it'll come back to you, don't worry. It'll come back to me. Uh, but at the time, this, this gentleman, Nate Parker, was writing a story, writing a script about uh, the Nat Turner Rebellion. Uh, and that film would become The Birth of a Nation. And I worked as an assistant to Nate on that, and I was a walkie PA. Uh, and it was there that I realized that I needed to move to Los Angeles. Like, there was that I was experiencing the, what, what many describe as a glass ceiling uh, in New York, and that the real opportunities uh, for filmmaking and becoming a director um, was in California. But, you know, my first attempt at telling a story, I went back to the old neighborhood and I started to deal with some of the trauma uh, that I experienced growing up. And, you know, lo and behold, I was able to rewrite the narrative um, in that community. And um, I, what could have easily been conceived as enemy lines, um, you know, that that it was dispelled when I made this film. So it was amazing that I was able to go and rewrite a tragic story in a way that um, provided understanding for both sides, for two sides. Um, and, you know, it brought peace, at least in my life, in my journey. So it was, it, I think that's, a, that's a, it's an example, Nani is an example um, where art not only mimics life, um, but it can also create a new life for someone in a way that, you know, changes them for the positive. Perfect. So now when we, we, we mentioned uh, Nat Turner, so we got to mm -hmm. make sure not everybody, if we think about this day where you got a governor in Florida saying we won't mm -hmm. study, I can't, I, I can't have a, an honest black history course in my mm -hmm. state. Uh, we have uh, a candidate running for president who said America's never been racist, you know, mm -hmm. in that sense. And we have book bannings all across the country. So when we talk yeah. about Nat Turner, Nat Turner, we're talking about a, 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 a slave rebellion. Yes, we are. And 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 terms probably one of and, and it's a piece of history that people need to know. People need to know that every day that uh, African slaves who arrived on our shores were born on our shores were always struggling, always fighting for freedom, always looking for a way up. And so, I, and I I think that's that stuff. When for me, that's a mirror, but that mm -hmm. mirror builds respect. It does. For and black history, which is American history over there. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. Real one quick point. Birth of a nation. We had two birth of a nations there. We did. Uh, we did. And the first one, I don't think you would like or I would like. The birth of a nation was the rallying cry for uh, a 30 million plus American Ku Klux Klan. Absolutely. So it actually, reinvigorated, it actually reinvigorated the Klan. Reinvigorated, and we certainly don't need any reinvigorating of the of of a violent group like the Klan. That's our first, uh, uh, you know, black eyed peas ever seen. You know, we we got domestic terrorists right here living in the USA, and uh, the Klan are definitely domestic terrorists. So, so the pieces that that uh, when I'm thinking about this, being a filmmaker, a screenwriter, 
we can write history factually, and we can rewrite the narrative that builds. So this, this is just fascinating and stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, if I was only uh, 40 years younger, I might be joining you. I might be saying, Spike, can I, can I, can I catch your coffee for you? You know, can I hold the mic over there? That kind of sense. But, but now we know that you're a filmmaker, but you also have other projects and things in development. So could you tell us a little bit of what else are you doing? Are you just out there every day filming people, recording sounds? What are you doing? Well, I do have a feature in development. It's a big deal. Um, I'm extremely excited about it, but because it's in development, I can't speak much about it. Um, but I do have, um, also I, I, I produce for the Hartford Public Library and we, we're coming up on our 250th anniversary um, of service to the Hartford community. Uh, and our archives, um, some of the material in the archives are older than 250 years. Uh, so it has been my goal to work with my, um, our audio production manager, uh, Sam Sigmund. He and I, we've been uh, floating around town and gathering, collecting all the many library stories that we can. Uh, so we've been, we have this a focus on audio right now, and we've been getting all the uh, library stories of our local legends, and uh, that's just been an eye opener in its, in itself. I got a chance to sit down with Lou Brown. Um, he was once the uh, news uh, news personality when I was growing up. We both lived on Grafton Street on the south end of Hartford. A lot of people know me on the north end, but they don't realize I'm originally from the south end. Um, uh, and uh, Lou Brown was my first image of a celebrity. You know, I used to think he was famous because he was on TV all the time. He um, was famous. He is, and he is. And he is. Um, but at the time, I didn't understand the difference between local politics and national politics. Um, but still, he's, a, he. Uh, you know, Lou, Lou is a shining figure in my life. And he still, to this day, acts as a mentor continues to encourage me and invite me to things. In fact, I was just at Trinity for something they were honoring Lou. About two or three weeks ago, I was there. So I thank God for Lou and I thank God for him being in my in my, in my peripheral as a child uh, because I think that in and of itself kind of was a... Um, and it's he, people he who was are acting lives. That yeah, he was, yeah, he was acting Angels in the, in, 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 in the wings. Absolutely, fire and lift, and 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 keep us from straying uh, from from what what really matters and 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 gives us hope and future. So I I, I my, often I'll begin with my classes. My teachers all know the story of mm. the homeless kid who we didn't have free and reduced lunches in school. I'm too old for that. And so if you didn't have lunch, you brought your lunch to school. If you didn't have it, you didn't have you didn't eat. And I remember in my that was my seventh grade class with Mr. Bass. He's my hero. Mr. Bass turns around and Mr. Bass knows that old oh, Jesse's not eating anything. And you know, you're a little kid. You say, I don't like to eat. No, nah, I hate lunch. It's the worst meal of the day. You know, all the kids be looking at me, yeah, and I'll be looking at them eating their bologna sandwiches, their liverwurst sandwiches, their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I'm yeah, starving yeah. as can be. I haven't eaten anything. Uh, and I have no place to sleep that night. I'll be sleeping with my mother in a train station, this kind of crazy stuff in your life. But Mr. Bass, what he did was he noticed that. And mm -hmm. the next thing I knew was for a year, he fed me lunch. And he did it this way by saying, oh, look, 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 look. 
My, my wife made me two sandwiches today. I can't believe it. I don't like liverwurst, and I have two of them. Who's going to eat it? He knew I love liverwurst. And, yeah. and he says to me, uh, Jesse, could you eat this one for me? Now, let me tell you, if there's ever been honey from the gods, that sandwich was honey from the gods, and Mr. Bass changed my life, and I went from, as a homeless kid, I was definitely, for at least two years, we were in that, that predicament. And for those two years, I was probably the worst student you could have in class. From that mm. first sandwich on, I never knew anything but an A, never knew anything but respect. Teachers became my heroes instantly. So Mr. Bass is, is like that. And Amwar, the librarian, and Mr. Brown, and I, I, I love the public to know that we, we and, and I, I, I think that's what I saw when, it, when, I, when I watched that uh, Thoughts. Oh, wow. I saw that something, an act of kindness, an yes, act of respect today, can change your life tomorrow. So, and, and we're focused on schools and stuff, on test scores and all the wrong things. We should mm -hmm. be focused on building respect and dignity and helping people along the way and giving them those acts of kindness to change that. But, but I want to bring back, uh, I want to get back to, you said you work for the uh, Harvard Public Libraries, and, and I think there's a project there. I, I think people can't see that <laughs> Samuel's next to you over there collecting some orders. Yeah, it's okay. He's, Sam, Sam's the audio person. So we saw his hand. <laughs> we saw his hand. We're good for that. Yeah, but yeah, what I'm see. saying is they're collecting. If I remember, if I was looking up on, on your research study in itself, and mm -hmm. I was looking up and there are uh, audio uh, workshops, how to do a podcast coming up. Uh, video, yeah, yeah. all of that. So, could you tell us about what what's going on at the Harvard Public Library? What are you and Sam doing, causing chaos? Well, first, I have to thank you know Leticia Cotto uh, and my colleague uh, Nigel White. Um, and it was uh, it was us with Nigel who had first brought the uh, idea of this Picpisha grant that we just got, um, and we wrote, you know, and we applied to this grant. Um, and we we received something where it was 91,000 91, uh, that we received in October, and we spent all that we spent ninety one thousand on mixers and um, field audio equipment, uh, mostly audio equipment because the, the 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 train of thought was that if we could teach people in the community and give them access to professional audio equipment, a lot of the things that you see people filming with their cell phones. Um, and DSLRs and cameras that are a lot easier to access. Um, you could actually create content with that and you'll have the sound. So if you remember Blair Witch Project and other films yeah. like that nature, where the picture quality might not meet your everyday standards, but because you can hear it, a person will still be engaged. I think social media is an evidence of that too, because the picture quality on a lot of those posts are terrible, but because people can hear it, They'll still catch the joke. They'll still follow the story and they'll still enjoy the content. So that was our thinking and uh, going audio heavy to kind of open the door to people to tell their own stories um, and find their own narratives and be a platform for themselves, if you will, um, and just have the professional audio equipment and access to equipment and the technique, um, the skill set that they needed to use the equipment. So that is the first part of the grant. And like you just mentioned, we had our first audio class that ran um, from November through December. Uh, and we learned a lot from that. Uh, but we do have two more courses, two more workshops coming up in the spring. 
the first being a podcasting um, workshop and the second being in a, a, a digital filmmaking um, workshop. So we're looking forward to, you know, opening the door for the community to come in and create um, and find other creatives that they can work with and crew with um, to realize their visions. I'm 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 in. I I think I might be taking those workshops over there. Uh, in terms awesome. of like people may not realize, normally before COVID, we were doing this radio show in the studio. The -hmm. studio, everything is perfect. The sound is perfect. The visuals are perfect. Uh, It just flows together. Uh, What we're used to doing on phones, one benefit is we always, we have a million pictures of our babies and and things in our lives. But the quality of of that visual is not really uh, film-worthy quality. It's, it's, It's acceptable. The audio is seems fine but it's not always good sort of like on my tv my smart tv i have the sound bar so i can hear the audio in the back as well and and that kind of kind of stuff so so i love this idea and and if people can make podcasts this is this is the stuff when kids used to ask me i I taught writing on the tohoto often reservation that's in arizona um and so those are all native students and so i I we used to have some Classic conversation. I say, why should you, you know, what's right? And they would say, well, it's boring, kind of tiring. And then I say, well, you're going to trust white people to write your story? And they're like, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> and I'm saying, then you need to start writing your story. Podcasting gives us the same things. So imagine if we had podcasts, our, our grandmas, our, 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 our relatives, our uncles and our aunts, all those people that are no longer in our lives. And the same thing with the filmmaking. And mm-hmm. it's interesting. I don't know if, uh, the local TVs like Nutmeg is in New Britain. Uh, mm-hmm. It will also lend you equipment. They won't train you to do it. They yeah, so uh, equipment. That, that, I mean, you raise a you raise an important point because the success of HBO Studios um, relies heavily on the partnerships, and one of the main partnerships that we um, are developing now is with HPA TV. That's Hartford Public Access Television. And their model, their business model, is to provide community members with the equipment to tell stories and produce content in the Hartford region. Um, and that's kind of where that that marriage between HPA TV and HBO Studios will provide, you know, access to the community, uh, you know, to pe- to community members um, to get the cameras and everything that they need to go out and tell stories, be it a web series, a podcast. Um, the whole idea is to cut the, you know, eliminate the digital divide that exists in poor communities like uh, Hartford. And uh, so I'm just happy to be a part of it. I mean, I, I recall a time when I would have to get on a train or or the bus um, or drive to, down to Manhattan to get access to the digital media library there. Um, and now that I'm in L.A. most of the time, I'm oftentimes at USC at the Cecil B. DeMille um, Film Library. Uh, but all those resources will soon be readily available to anyone in the Hartford community downtown. You know, that's a part of the digital media um, initiative that we have building HPL studios. There will be books and workshops and, um, um, you know, educational series and books that you only get access to in film school will be right, right down at our public library. Right. So I'm super excited about this project. Public library. While we're talking about libraries for a minute, uh, mm-hmm. the other day, 
we were having a discussion about libraries. So see my little history of yeah. libraries books and, and Christopher and I were talking about, we seem to have a, a, a love of libraries and a love of, of literacy and all that stuff. But um, I was telling Christopher about the early, early libraries, the great mm. Alex, the library of Alexandria, where there were mm. over 250,000 scrolls and texts. Uh, mm. It was the largest library in the world. No, no European library came close to it. They were talking about 100 if they were lucky. And we're talking wow. about 250,000. Same thing wow. in Baghdad, in Persia. Same thing, you know, we, we had libraries all over the world that were things. But one thing that I did, uh, I, I mentioned to Chris, was libraries in the old days used to be noisy. And mm. so they were at, like communal, communal at, places. Communal like places. So we would have this conversation, but also the reading of texts. So when we're talking, because we're talking about the history of reading, and I'm not certain the public under, under, will, will understand this, but let me explain it to you. The first written texts, whether they were dots, whether they were in some kind of script with the hieroglyphics, they had no spaces, no punctuation. The lines just went on to the next and the next and the next. <clears throat> so when we're, when we're doing that, the way to be sure that you were conveying uh, the text. And back then, the, the purpose of a text was to give you a conversation that somebody wrote, wrote down before. And the idea was you had to reproduce it um, in, in, you know, as accurate as possible. So you read them orally. So Chris and mm -hmm. I might be reading the same text from Spike Lee, a letter from Spike Lee, saying, well, I want this. And, you know, I think you should do this with your next film. But when there's mm -hmm. no punctuation, no spaces, uh, there was a lot of oral reading and, and, and the history of oral of literacy is that for the first 3000 years, we all read orally and we read out loud. And if you were to read, read silently, they thought that was heresy. They thought that was suspicious. They thought they couldn't trust you because you might not produce the text accurately. So I just thought this library, and then I just want to get back to the library as a social place. I think maybe we're coming full circle mm. because when we're at the Hartford Public Library, and I'm there for the podcasting, and I need to go there for the uh, podcasting workshop. What what happens is that's going to be noisy. That's going to be talking. It's going to be returning to the libraries that were great social centers where scholars, uh, spiritual leaders, uh, military generals, great smart people in general. Libraries were also private back then because it's funny, the 250th anniversary coming up for the Harvard mm -hmm. Public Library. I think the oldest one in Connecticut is in Salisbury, I think. And both, really? both of the libraries, the Harvard and that library, are pre-America, pre-the talking, So we're talking about the library. And public libraries are a recent phenomenon that only mm -hmm. over there, they've came around in the 18th century. Before that, libraries were for the powerful, for the elite, for uh, 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 universities and those kinds of things. So well, you're you know, really bringing the library's the equity. Well, the powers that be recognized, you know, you have this huge influx of uh, Eastern Europeans, you know, blacks from the, you know, former slaves from the South coming North. I mean, you had such a movement in the exodus of different places coming to America. Uh, and it was the only way that these people could pay taxes and participate in democracy is if they understood it. So the only way you can understand uh, a system and, and, and kind of become uh, a part of it is if you have access to literature and information. So I think 
it went hand in hand. I mean, it was it was it was in the elite's best interest to provide that access because without it, how do there is no ladder to climb, you know? So yeah. I'm really interested in, in in everything that you're saying and and how public libraries came about um, because access to information. I mean, think about it. I mean, people are to this day you have so much student debt. Um, that that's associated with access to information because you know they know once you have access to information and they know once you acquire the knowledge you can get gainful employment. I mean, it's just a, you can. Get, it's not only gainful employment; it's 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 you could become a better person. You could absolutely. you could rise up in many different ways, uh, rise in many and, different and ways. that sense. But this this library stuff you had mentioned the narratives of slaves. Well, we have the Library of Congress has two sets of slave narratives. They are mm. historical treasures. We have those that were written during Reconstruction, and so mm -hmm. they were written just of dictation, exactly yes. as I'm saying. And so some people are critical of them because they say, well, they're not so grammatically structured, or mm. but they they are as they're primary sources, and in history, primary sources are gold. And then during the, uh, uh, the the Great Depression, and once again, we had to employ people, we created new, we had people imagine this, we paid people to go <coughs> collect the narratives, the memories of, of, of surviving slaves. And yes. so those two sets of narratives are in the Library of Congress, they are historical treasures, primary sources. Historians, they don't want to hear what Dr. Turner says about something. They want to go right to the source. That's the goal. That's sort of like me being able to say, well, you know, I didn't see Michael Jordan on TV. I played against him. And by the mm -hmm. way, I did not because, but that's just normal. But that concept. So, so this idea that the library becoming a social place that allows mm -hmm. people not only to read about the world, but to write the world as they see it. That's what I like about that. So so that that's that's amazing that 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 concept in there. And I can't I can't believe believe that we're we're doing this. This is a time when urban libraries funding has been cut about 20% over the past decade. Mm -hmm. We're not cutting them in, in Rodale Drive, we're not cutting them in Simsbury and Avon, we're not making any cuts to those libraries, but others and stuff. So it's it's interesting, but we want to think about something. So you've got the celebration of the 250. Is there a specific day, or is the workshops part of that? Well, there's a website. Um, let me let me see if yeah, I can put it in the box. There's definitely a website. Let me see. They were just, they were actually going over that yesterday. Sam, you, you remember that website that they were giving us for 250 yesterday? Uh, Hold on, it's, it's, I, I want to say it's two fifty HPL. Two. I'm gonna. I'm, let me find it. Yeah, you're on there. You should be able to see it there too, and we'll find it. We'll find. Yes, www.hpl250.org. I'm actually gonna put that in a box. Put it in the box. Put it in the box. And you'd be able, you'll be able to follow the calendar and all the events that are associated with um, our anniversary. You know, it's amazing um, the power of a library system like Harper Public Library. You know, I would never 
have uh, thought um, that I'd be able to accomplish so much uh, through the library. You know, how does one, how does a filmmaker become a librarian? Um, you know, that you, you just kind of, you kind of find your passion. I found my passion. I found my safe space in a library. In a library. And then when I became a Trinity College student, I started to work at Ratha Library, and I found my passion in the media center, where where they would, where professors would, um, you know, you know, um, curate book uh, films as teaching tools, you know, as instruments um, to expose to different cultures or different time periods. And you know, I was able to, you know, study African film and French cinema and, um, you know, German cinema and. Uh, early Hollywood cinema, and you know, I, I came across books like uh, the the movie director's story, in which it get, it created all it, there was so many profiles of all these directors, but nobody was of color. Nobody was of color. Uh, it wasn't until I, there's one one of my favorite books about directors um, is the movie director's story, and uh, it profiles um, about a hundred directors. None of them are of African American descent, um, and you don't. It's not until you get to page two hundred and seven um, that you see an African American even pictured in the book. Uh, and it's when it when they're talking about Norman Jewison, and you have pictures of Sidney Poitier, uh, who was in films. So, ironic enough, this was my favorite book because it, it provided a window, a mirror to what I wanted to be and also a, a window into how I could, might become it. But it became readily, you know, it, it became obvious, becomes obvious. Book that, yeah. <laughs> you it's, know, being a writer director was, uh, was a privilege. Was a privilege. You know? And uh, I, I understood that. And I, and I still understand that. And I, and I'm, I'm humbled and I'm honored to have people to support me. Um, and I do, I do have some people that I want to thank because I wouldn't be producing um, for the library had not it been for um, people like Anwar Ahmad, Spike Lee, who I reached out to when the opportunity first came about, um, Marie Jerry, Diane Lewis, and Bridget Quinn, um, the head librarian and CEO of Harvard Public Library. Um, if, if it weren't for those individuals, I would not be um, as... Uh, active on the front lines of bringing digital literacy to Hartford as I am. Um, they, they've given me an opportunity to kind of bring back everything that I've learned in Hollywood, everything that I've learned in, in the industry um, and create opportunities for young people, all people uh, to start to, you know, investigate their own narratives and get their own family histories and oral histories and stories and uh, it's just an amazing opportunity, I feel, uh, being able to, you know, produce for the Harvard Public Library because it just, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable, really. <laughs> it's, let's, let's give it the words. Uh, in a world that's racially torn, it's radical. Mm -hmm. It's okay? radical. So people don't want to say that. It's transformational. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what, what uh, racists are afraid of. Uh, mm. Black lives, brown lives, LGBTQ lives, uh, mm. poor immigrant lives, all of a sudden be able to uh, retext freely, not be able to go, you know, so when I bought, I think my library book probably cost me like 30 something dollars or something, but mm. uh, I could get it publicly free at the library. 
over there, that concept. Now I could be make, I could be writing my stories. That's why uh, Maya Angelou said, history, despite its wrench and pain, need not be relived again if faith, if face with courage. So when I'm thinking about that, that kind of concept, that's what the library has always offered us. It's the one place I could find equity. So I can walk into the Hartford Public Library, any public library. Nobody's, I don't see, we could go back and we're not going to find ever, uh, no blacks allowed, no, no, no uh, Hispanics allowed, no women allowed. People don't know the history of libraries. Children were not allowed in libraries for the longest time. Uh, yeah. Women were not allowed in the libraries. So it's kind of, uh, definitely poor working people weren't allowed in the library. So there's radical transformation stuff. So radical. But I want to do a little transition because what will happen is time will go quickly. We're at like uh, 11.44, probably another by t uh, uh, 11.57, Harry will start playing the music on us. So you had some questions. You wanted to turn the interview around. Nobody's ever did that. You're, like, <laughs> you're, you're already radical transforming. No one's ever asked me questions. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Um, let's, uh, let's, you want to, you want to mic him? Okay. So I'm going to start asking him his library story. Okay. Awesome. What is your, uh, what are your earliest memories of a library? All right. All right. The They're all good. And there's two, two stories I always share with, uh, my, my teachers. I primarily work, I teach teachers. That's what I do over here. And I share these stories. Uh, my, my earliest memory of the library is that when school was off, my mother worked, so she worked as a waitress. She worked all day long, sent me to school, you know, and everybody worked in the house. And so when there was a school break, my mother used to call, call my grandfather and say, you got to take care of the kid. And he'd be like, you know, I don't want to sit around this apartment over here. Uh, and he'd go to the library. And he was a big library person. So I tell people my memories of my grandfather in the library is really, uh, he used to throw me under the table. You know, I'd go under the big, the big old wooden tables uh, and it was the libraries when they had catalog times, but, but it was a bunch of old men that would hang out at the table. And what happened is the library, and, and I don't, I, especially in, in, in the days of my youth, the library had newspapers from all around the world. So who sat at that table? My grandfather was a World War I uh, veteran of foreign war, was an immigrant, uh, all immigrants, immigrants from Africa, immigrants from Spain, immigrants from Mexico, immigrants from Asia, sat at that table and they would find their newspapers and they would talk and read. And my grandfather would just throw books at me. He had no idea he wasn't a teacher. He'd throw out, you know, Cervantes' Don Quixote at the eight-year-old kid under the table. And I'd be like, well, oh, this book is pretty hard, Grandpa. You know, and I remember that. And so that 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 idea that the library was 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 a place, and his library was talkative. Now I'm not. I'm sure the librarians every once in a while came in. Maybe Sam's over there, and they'd go, Shh. but yeah, the old yeah. men were talkative. They were battling about whatever was going on in the world. They were fighting, and what was going on in South America, Europe, Africa. They they. They, they, they had lively discussions and they'd be bounced into the newspapers like, this. look, look, it says right over here and stuff. So, so that was that. And, and, and that's one memory. But mm. the other piece of the, the library for me is uh, when you grow up in a community and my community would be that community 
as a young kid, we're talking about people coming back from the Vietnam War, our veterans, lots of people dying, coming back with uh, being addicted to, to cheap heroin that was there. Uh, drugs were, 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 were flooding our, our communities. Uh, violence were, was, was all over the place. I mean, maybe it's like, um, I think who, I think Dickens said the best of times, the worst of times, you know, they're always, these are the times we have. But what I remember is that uh, there was an eviction notice on the apartment and my father disappeared for us for about 15 years. And wow. my mother and I wound up homeless. Mm -hmm. And so the deal was that we would sleep at the local train station. Everything we'd have would be on us. And she liked one train station, the Erie Lackawanna train station in Hoboken. So we lived in Jersey City, you go to Hoboken, not that far away. But it nice. had great bathrooms and little showers. Wow. Know, they're, they're, these don't, you don't have these anymore. But what happened, we'd go there and we'd stay there and we'd struggle. And the idea would be, could we afford a little room or could we eat? And, you know, this is, but really what happened is my mother worked and people forget about that homelessness people. But what I remember about the library, my mother's friend, Gloria, worked at the library and my mother would say after school you don't want you going on the street i want you running around you go to school and when you leave school you go to the library and when i went to the library uh mrs s would make sure that she welcomed me with a smile she knew my mother i would stay there until my mother got off work and come pick me up and and mrs s would make sure that i had a hot chocolate people didn't give no hot chocolates to people coming to the library i had a mm. hot chocolate I would have these great homemade cookies he would make for me. And she'd always have books for me, books. And she always, she knew my circumstances. Um, she was my, my, my mother's high school friend, chum, you know. And so that idea, that librarian there, it was more than just the books. The library was the place where I found my humanity. That's what it is. So that's my, my real library story is that, that a librarian gave me the humanity that enabled me to deal with the two most difficult years of my life. I was mm -hmm. safe, I was warm, I was welcome, and I was fed not only the cookies, but my mind was fed. I had the best books, you know? Well, yeah, that was good. That sounds, that sounds a lot like a movie I've yeah, that's seen. Movie. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds so a lot like Thoughts Are Things. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 like that. It's like that. But that's why when uh, Camilla Haston sent said, uh, uh, "Doctor Turner, you might like to meet this guy," she's over yeah, there, and she awesome. sent me the link, and the link was she had the link like it was the biggest link I ever saw, but it worked when I clicked on it. So yeah, normally awesome. I, said, I said, "Camilla, you know you could get a shorter version of that link," but in any event, I remember watching that, and it brought back the fresh memories. Mm. The number one predictor of how students, we're always worried about standardized test scores. Mm. We're always worried about how schools are failing us, but the schools are not our number one predictor of how successful students will be with literacy. Uh, test scores are certainly not the number one predictor. Even the SAT tells you they're not a good predictor. You should look at GPAs, but the best predictor of, 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 of being successful on standardized tests is access to books. And wow. so- uh, Jeff McQuillan, Dr. McQuillan uh, from uh, uh, UCLA, and Stephen Krashen. Dr. Krashen is the number one language acquisition researcher in the world. 
uh, and both of them have, have written research and written books that talk about the best predictor of your academic performance is classroom libraries, is access to libraries, books in the home. Access to books are the number one predictor. And for poor kids like me, we didn't have, the only book my family owned was a Bible. And, you know, and we were Catholic, so we don't really read the Bible a lot. We didn't read the Bible a lot. The priest kind of did it in homily. Uh, but what happens is libraries provide that. So I, 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 it's definitely, if I wanted to change things, I should be over there making libraries the number one priority of, 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 of helping students become successful. They should be at temples. That's the stuff. So I don't know if that makes sense, but <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. It makes per. What made you? Uh, where did you find your passion for literacy? Well, you know, it's it's the old old story. I'm I'm the kid that so people. I don't want people to know too much about me, but you might call me also the trouble bully in the neighborhood as well, with all the little gang boys, sports play, football players, and stuff like that. I was good in school, but you know, other things. And, and I used to. I always, because of that experience with my grandfather in the library, I mm. started reading books. I'm an urban kid. They didn't give us a, a real novel until we were in the ninth grade. That's the first time I saw a, a book that had chapters in it. Oh, um, wow. But what happened is, because of that experience as a, as a young kid, I always knew the library, Charles Dickens, whatever it was, my grandfather was feeding me books that he thought I should be reading over mm. there. And so I fell in love with reading because I wasn't a kid that went on vacation. I don't know what, everybody goes somewhere for two weeks. Everybody goes to Europe, Disneyland, all those things. While my daughter has seen all those things, I never saw those things. So books mm. were my vacations. Books were my dreams, were my hopes. Uh, most of the male figures in my life were, were, were not positive. Uh, most of the community was just like you were talking about the North End. I mean, I, I remember going to school one day and there were two mafia hits on two men. We, we were at a traffic light and there's two dead bodies in a car, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't unusual to see violence. So where I could, books took me there. So I struggled with it. You know, you, when, a, when an old man gives you Don Quixote, that's 800 pages, you know, until you start reading it. And then when you're reading it, William said, that's not a right. Read it again. I felt like the old old readers, the old monks who had to read, continue. Yeah. but books were, gave me, they were my ticket to my dreams and the, who, who wants to be, I don't know, today I'm living my dream life over there. And as my teaching, you know, because time will go, but because when I came back after I did my PhD and I wanted to see all my friends, there were 45 of us on our football team. We won the we won our little championship, you know. And in high school, that's a big thing, you know. We're just a bunch of ghetto kids and playing against the wealthier schools, the better schools. Somehow we won. I don't know how, but we won. And when I came back, I wanted to see all forty-five, but there was mm. only fifteen of us that were not incarcerated. Uh, and so that reunion, so so many half of them, half of that twenty-five were dead by homicide or suicide. And the other half was serving lifetime incarceration sentence. I don't even, I, I one that had eight lifetimes, sentenced wow. eight times because he had committed arson that killed eight people. So it's this kind wow. of stuff. You, and you, you, so in that sense, so books, and, and if I look at the difference, my role as a teacher, when I 
when I decided what was my mission, I was going to, all of those kids I knew I grew up with. And trust me, when they were little kids, they were good kids. They were good kids. We played fair. We were nice. Uh, we, we were the best of good athletes, good citizens, good all that. And I don't know what happens as we grow up. I think books and libraries uh, saved me over there. But I'm, my, my purpose of a teacher is I want to once have that class where everybody lives and everybody gets the dream. And maybe that's the idea with your filmmaking. But we've got to get back to you. Tell us. No. Give us you're coming down to the, the last two minutes. Give us the thoughts that you want to leave us with. Uh, you know, uh, tell us, you know, I, I know we've got the we got the podcasting. We got the filmmaking. But but and, and you've got grants, we've got that piece, but but what's the what's the dream? What's the dream? That passionate dream. If you I said that I want to have the class where everyone lives, everyone prospers. Uh, what's your dream with filmmaking? Uh, my dream is to create a studio and to have a studio in the Northeast, in New England, very similar to Tyler Perry Studios, if you will. Uh -huh. uh, and I want to create a partnership between Trinity College, which was a life-saving lifeline for me, uh, and um, in Hartford Public Library, uh, which was also a lifeline for me, um, and to create access in a way that, because one thing we had at Trinity, we had a film studies minor, uh, but we didn't have a department. And I, and I would love to create an opportunity that for, for Trinity students uh, to, to study film in a department. So if I could just, my dream is to buy land and on that land, create a talent factory uh, that serves as an incubation space uh, for those who want to study the arts and, and for community members who are interested in the arts to be exposed to that training, if you will. Um, and I want to do this uh, with an emphasis on storytelling. Um, I remember we used to go to this camp, the YMCA, um, in, in New Hartford, there was a, I can't remember what, Camp Jewel, I believe, uh, for different workshops. My, my vision would be to have a, a situation out in a remote location uh, full of trees in the wilderness uh, where people are taught storytelling techniques um, that matter uh, and they're able to then facilitate the production of that story uh, and begin to work with other artists like costume designers, my mentor, Ruth Carter, um, casting directors like my mentor, Kim Coleman, um, and just find the different uh, ways. All right, we've come to an end. Of course, an hour wasn't enough. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to that studio. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm thank never quitting on my mission. I'm on with what I'm giving. Got some ambition. This new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Yeah, Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you're stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working. Open curtains. Haters swerving because they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never going to give up, give up. Fall down. I just got to get up, get up. Yeah. Cause this is my camera You're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 SM. Your home for community radio.